Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Trout Talk. I'm here with John Jurasek again, and since it's the fall, I thought we would talk about some migratory trout, specifically the brown trout in Yellowstone National Park. John, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's a pleasure to join you again, and I do look forward to talking about some brown trout. <laughs> Good, <laughs> because I'm going to quiz you all about it. All right. So maybe the most famed fall run of brown trout in Montana and Yellowstone country region are the brown trout that run out of Hebgen Lake up the Madison in the park in September and October. And I want to ask you just about migratory trout in general, but just to start off and get context and talk about this example, I just want to hear about the start of things at Hebgen Lake. Why is Hebgen Lake such a rich fishery? So Hebgen Lake sits in a basin. It was dammed in 1914 the Madison River to form Hebgen Lake. So it's a pretty rich fishery because it's got a lot of different elements to it. It has three arms which are quite shallow and nutrient rich, and it has the main body of the lake which is not nearly as rich, but still is on the whole a good fishery. And so it makes this kind of interesting high altitude lake fishing. And the tributaries, it's got a bunch of tributaries that feed it, and those add richness to it. And of course, reservoirs are nutrient exporters in general anyways. So they collect a bunch of nutrients and they develop a richness of their own. And this one in particular is capable of holding a lot of really nice trout. Okay, and so there are rainbows and there are browns. I believe they've tried stocking cutthroat, but whatever happened with that? They had tried a lot of different things over the years and they did in fact try cutthroat way back in the 80s and they, took to the lake okay, but when it came time to, for them to spawn, they had to run up a tributary, and they chose one called Red Canyon Creek, which was probably the lowest quality uh, tributary that feeds Hebgen, and consequently, they never spawned successfully in there, and the cutthroat eventually died off. So the principal fish in it, of course, are the brown trout, rainbow trout. There are a ton of Utah chubs, and also whitefish. I forgot about the whitefish. Okay, so the brown trout are kind of the focus, but rainbows actually also go up with the brown trout in the fall. Does anyone know why that is? Yeah, so Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks over the years has stocked a bunch of different strains of rainbow trout in Hebgen, all as fingerlings, and they did that for decades. And so all these different strains, their life histories have altered from where they originally came. And the bottom line is now is that we have a fall run of rainbow trout out of Hebgen, and they principally run up the Madison in the park. So while they are running alongside the brown trout and they are a tremendous sport fishery at the same time, they're gonna winter over in the river and they're gonna spawn in the springtime like conventional life history for a rainbow. And do they run, I guess, when, when are the first days that browns start running up? They're roughly the same time, but I think, I think there are some early brown trout. So the earliest I've ever caught one in the Madison in the park was August 9th. And I've had friends over the years that have fished it religiously starting about August 1st, and they have always caught a few that month as well. But certainly the bulk of the run takes place in September and October. And I, so I think that while the browns start, the rainbows start coming in a little bit later. They're more really into early September before they get there in any good numbers. Okay. And for anyone that hasn't fished the Madison in the park or the lower gibbon or the lower fire hole, it's like 
15, almost 15 miles of the Madison. The Madison is formed by the convergence of the fire hole and the gibbon. And then you have maybe half a mile of the lower fire hole until you hit the fire hole falls. And then how many miles of the gibbon until you hit the gibbon falls? Well, you've got a few miles of the gibbon there to work with for sure. And those fish will run all the way right up to the base of Gibbon Falls and, as you said, to the base of Firehole Falls. So you have quite a bit of water. I'm sure you've got at least 15 miles of the Madison. I mean, it's hard to know for sure it winds around so much. But 15 is a good guess. And uh, so exactly like you say, several miles of the Gibbon and a little bit on the Firehole there. How many of those fish are running all the way up to the falls on the Firehole or the Gibbon? And how many of them are just taking up a good spot along the way and being like, this looks like a good spot. Well, what you're asking is not known biologically, but I think the empirical evidence from us as fisheries would suggest that there are fish running the entire way to the base of the falls and just barely above the mouth of the river. So through the entire distance of the Madison, Firehole, and Gibbon, you will find trout. And I think probably they'd more or less just spread out along the way I don't know exactly what controls that. I don't think anyone does, but uh, you can catch them the entire length of the rivers. Okay. How big are the bulk of these fish? The brown trout vary. You will get young maiden fish coming up that are about 14 or 15 inches, and you can get them all the way up to 10, 11, 12 pounds. Those are the biggest specimens. Those are outsized fish. A big fish typically for the fall, we would consider somewhere between four and six pounds. The bulk of the fish are going to be 17 to 20 inches. That's the brown trout. Rainbow trout are going to mostly be in the category of 15 to 21 inches. Uh, I have caught one a rainbow as big as 22, but when people start talking about 24 and 25 inch uh, rainbows, you have to really sort of raise your eyebrow at that. <laughs> um, okay. they, they typically do not get that big in Hebby Lake. A 22 incher is a monstrous rainbow. But I'm raising, my, I'm raising my eyebrows about the 10 to 12 pound browns. No, there's been some of those over the years. They're very few and far between. How many inches is one of those going to be? Oh, 29, 30 inches, 31 inches. When was the last time one of those was caught? Boy, I can't say for sure, but I have known about four or five over the years. A couple friends of mine, uh, Steve Rye, who used to work for the park, he got a couple big ones like that. Our joint friend, Mickey Wooten, he got a really big one. <laughs> can't remember quite how big his was, but uh, pretty large. And how are they fishing for them? I don't know how those guys were fishing for them exactly. But, uh, you know, you can get the, the, the typically large fish, the ones I'm thinking of in terms of like four to six pounds, you can get them any variety of ways. So I typically swing flies just beneath the surface, and I have caught some that way. But by and large, if you really want to go after the biggest ones, you're going to fish flies down deep much closer to the bottom than I'm doing. So either nymphing or fishing a sinking line with a streamer? Yes, both of those are on hole, on balance. Uh, that's the best way to find a big one. Okay. What's the most popular way to fish for them? Well, I think the most popular way is to nymph fish. And that more or less involves, you know, the typical couple flies, split shot, and an indicator. That's what most people are doing. Um, and it's certainly an effective way. Day in and day out, uh, if you have to catch those fish, the closer you are to the bottom, the more fish you're gonna catch. I personally don't think it's the funnest way to catch them, but it's certainly an effective way. Okay. 
How do you tell whether you've caught a, a fall run fish or just a bigger resident? So the fall run fish are typically have brighter, more vibrant colors. Resident brown trout in the Madison are fairly muted and they are also not gonna be nearly as fat as the, the spawning fish. So if you catch one that's got muted colors, just not really super fat, and he's probably anywhere from 12 to 17 inches, that's probably a resident brown. The lake run browns, even the smaller ones, are gonna be really fat and healthy, and most of the time gonna have really vibrant colors. And that's not always true coloration-wise, but most of the time. And those are on average larger fish too. So 17 to 20, uh, that's sort of a typical brown trout size. And if he's got bright colors, it's gonna be lake fish. So the lake fish, if you see enough of them, they also have a slightly different body configuration. You can just tell from their outline, okay, this is a lake fish, the way he's built. Rainbow trout, if you catch a 16 inch or larger rainbow and it's healthy, fat, odds are very, very good that came from the lake. Rainbows that are resident in the Madison, a 16 incher would be a really big one. And that's sort of a starting point for the lake run fish. So you can kind of tell that way. Real small rainbows, 10, 12, 14 inches, odds are those are resident fish. Tell me kind of for, if you're like, okay, this day I'm going to fish for fall runners. How are you gonna approach that day? Well, the fish run at night. And so they're relocating during the night. They're coming into these lies, day breaks, they're kind of active, they're fresh, they're in a new spot. And I think always morning is the best time. Uh, obviously you can catch them through the day, especially on cloudy, nasty days. You can catch them in the evening, but most of the time morning is gonna be the best. And they're just kind of like a different animal than a regular just feeding lying trout. They're going to come in side by side with a resident fish of the Madison, but they're just on a completely different agenda, right? Absolutely, yeah. They're typically lying in different places than the resident fish. And because these fish they're running are, are larger than most of the resident fish, they will dominate the best lies. But typically those lies are not necessarily the feeding lies that a resident fish would choose. These fish are acting much more like Atlantic salmon or steelhead or sea run brown trout in the sort of lies they favor. Yeah, so they're, they're not picking a spot that happens to bring a ton of food by, but they will take something that just happens to be in front of them. Absolutely, you know, because they're running in advance of spawning. So the brown trout, even though they're running primarily in September and October, they're mostly gonna spawn in the Madison in November. And of course the rainbows are holding over till spawn in the spring. So the rainbows are for sure are definitely feeding and they act more like resident trout. They'll come up and feed on betas emergences. Uh, they'll take caddis. The brown trout will do that to some extent, but they've got a little bit more of spawning on their mind. So they will feed, but not like the rainbows. Um, so you said nymphing is the most effective way to do it. Before asking you, or what's the most fun way for you to do it, how are people, are they nymphing with bobbers? Are they like euro-nymphing for them? There's a little bit of both of that, but primarily people are using indicators and split shot in a couple nymphs. Uh, so that's certainly a great way to do it, no question. And you will catch a bunch of fish doing that. 
but there's a whole lot of different ways you can fish for these. I personally prefer swinging flies, and I prefer swinging unweighted or very lightly weighted flies, just like you would for salmon or steelhead. So I'm fishing just the upper six inches of water. I'm not getting down deep for those fish. Um, I have on occasion fished dry flies for them, blind, big attractor flies, and also imitations of mayflies, betas mayflies that they might be feeding on. So I personally favor swinging flies because that's just the most fun and I don't do that in a lot of other places around this area. The Madison is an ideal river for that. So it's just fun to have that variety of technique because uh, as you well know, you can blind fish nymphs on any river around here. So it isn't the same sort of unique experience uh, that you get if you swing flies or, or stream or fish or whatever. I guess, first of all, you're talking about swinging soft tackles and streamers. They're not exactly imitating any specific insect, right? You're, they're kind of, you're appealing to the, the trout's aggression during spawning times, right? Yes, I am. So I will fish uh, or swing streamers um, and certainly big soft tackles, you know, a couple inch long soft tackles. I use small ones now and then, but I like the bigger ones just because, again, in, around here, I don't get many places, uh, other, way, other places to do that. So it's kind of fun. And it, it's basically your steelhead or salmon fishing. You know, you're making sort of a cross-stream cast or quartering downstream cast, uh, mending perhaps depending on the current speed, and then letting that fly swing. And you just take a step, make a cast, let that swing through, take another step downstream, make another cast, and you just cover the water in that method, just like you would for steelhead or salmon. Is it the same in steelhead and swinging for these fall run fish that you're trying to give the fish a broadside view of the fly, basically coming straight across the water? Yeah, you know, it, there's so much variation in that, but that's what I try to do. I want that fly broadside. But you know, there are so many times when a fish will take at the end of the swing when the fly is basically facing upstream and the fish is coming at it from below. Uh, that happens a lot, but on balance, yes, I think that a broad side view of the fly to the fish is the best. It's also the best angle for hooking the fish. Okay. And once they feel, feel the steel, they're going berserk. Yeah, sure. These are strong, healthy fish. These are excellent specimens and they're in shape and you're going to get some good battles out of them. Yep. It's a lot you, of fun. When you're swinging, you're usually fishing a two-handed rod. I am all the time, yes. And why is that? Well, I think it's the most efficient way to do it. And for me, it's also the most fun way to do it. We did it for years with single-handed rods. But in the mid-80s, we were exposed, a couple friends of mine and I were exposed to two-handed rods from a couple Canadian steelhead guys who had come down to a Federation of Fly Fishermen's conclave. And they gave a little demonstration of that out on the Madison. And my friends and I, we all looked at each other and thought, why aren't we doing this on this river for these? Because essentially we are fishing for steelhead and sea run brown trout. That's what these fish coming out of Hebgen basically are. They act the same way, they hold in the same places. So we just thought, wow, this is a much more efficient way of covering the water as well. It offered us the opportunity to learn some new casting. Okay. So it was so just a lot of fun that way. So it's fun to cast those spay rods and you have more Trem reach. Tremendous amount of fun and so much more efficient for covering the water. Yes. Okay. It seems like there's 
a phenomenon kind of brewing in fly fishing, sort of a backlash to its elitist past. And that if you do something in a more complicated way, uh, then the easy, the most straightforward way possible, like using a two hand, two handed rod on a river that you could potentially still fish with a single hand rod, like you did before you found a, found out about two handed fishing. Do you, do you sense that phenomenon going on? Well, not too much here, not in my experience. And I guess I would make the case that I think I am fishing it in the most straightforward way possible. I mean, if you're going to swing flies and you do it with a single-handed rod and then you use it two-handed, I don't know of anyone that has ever used a two-handed that said, oh, wow, this is way less efficient. You know, I'm going back to the single-handed rod. Everything about it is just more efficient. And then you throw in the element of fun with the casting and it, it being a completely different experience from fishing other rivers around here. The, to me, it is just the most straightforward, simple way of doing it. And I would never go back to fishing a single-handed rod okay. if I'm swinging flies. Okay, so let's say you have 20 miles between the Madison, the Gibbon, and the Firehole, where you can find these fish. I know there's some really popular spots that get really crowded. How do you go about choosing where to fish? Yeah, so that's sort of interesting. I would tell you that, look, there are fish spread out through the entire distance of the Madison, Firehole, and Gibbon, but they do tend to concentrate in the deeper areas. The well-known holes, for instance, like the Barnes holes, those are well-known holes. They have just enough depth and proper current speed and fish gang up in them. There's no question, those are some great holes. There are plenty of holes like that all the way up to Madison Junction. So I want a little bit of depth for sure. I want a certain current speed. I do not want it too fast. So if you are familiar with this, there's about a six mile stretch from the Barnes holes up to Riverside Drive. Mm -hmm. Maybe not quite six miles, but that's a lot of shallow water in there. Uh, the river's a little wide there. It's a little quick, but along that, there are still depressions here and there, and those deeper depressions will always hold fish. Now those depressions aren't large, they're not going to hold, you know, 30 fish like some of the big major holes on the river will. But they'll hold two or three fish. And those little depressions are spread all throughout there, all the way up and down the river. So it's possible to find those lies. And you're not going to find them unless you fish that river. You have to cover the water. And when you hook a fish, you pay attention to exactly where that fish came out of. Look at that water. Study why was that fish holding there. So it's a, I, I tell people, look, Go ahead and fish the major holes. They're quite obvious, and you're going to catch fish. But guess what? They're also going to be very popular with other anglers. There are plenty of places along the Madison and the Gibbon that hold fish that do not get a lot of attention. And if you can't recognize them right off the bat, you can fish them. Just fish through the water, and you'll find out if fish are in there or not. So it takes a little bit of experience there. But these fish are gonna hold in the same spots year after year after year, assuming the river doesn't change and the Madison doesn't change much. So a spot that holds fish this year, every year ensuing from then on, you're gonna find fish in that same lie. So it's, uh, it doesn't take a long time to learn it, but it does take some time. And especially if you wanna fish areas where other people aren't, you have to be willing to put in that time. 
and it's probably a lot easier to cover all that water with a two-handed rod. Definitely, yeah, much more efficient for sure. But that's a that's interesting, and it makes sense that even through a giant shallow stretch, the fish have to go through there, so they're going to be holed up in places you can get to. Them. I th- yeah, I think it's interesting because you know we don't know how far a given fish will run overnight because you can catch them in the barn soles. Well, guess what? That's only a couple miles above Hebgen Lake. So are they stopping there and then all of them moving further upriver or some of them just going to stay in that area, you know, for the entire length of their spawning period? Who knows really? So the fish can move. I think somebody did a study once that I thought indicated a fish could go from Hebgen Lake to the base of Gibbon Falls overnight. And I don't know how they checked that out for sure, Uh, but it stands to reason they could do that if they wanted to. But yeah, but fish just end up, for whatever reason, getting all spread out along the entire river. So even those little depressions, the little nooks and crannies I'm talking about, while they may not hold a lot of fish, they're going to hold fish that haven't been disturbed by other anglers and offer up great opportunities. It's a cool way to think about it because I know that it can get just crazy busy at the most popular places. And it's cool to think that they're fish really all over that you can find as long as you just have the confidence and the time. Yes, spawner fishing takes some faith because these fish act differently on any given day. You know, they might take like crazy one day, they might just be riveted to the bottom the next day. You never know how they're going to behave, how much activity they're going to give you on a given day. So you just have to go in and you have to trust that you are fishing over fish and you got to give it a go. Just like steelhead fishing, you got to got to trust they're there, and you just got to put the time in. Okay, when you're swinging, whether it's small soft tackles or a big streamer, do you ever switch flies and kind of run through the same spot? Do you feel like there is a difference, or are they really not that keyed into the fly, and they're just you just happen to catch them at the time when they're aggressive or not? I don't think they get keyed into a certain fly, but I can give you a couple generalities in, early in the season which would be the end of August up to about mid-September, I have always done better with a natural colored fly. And I feel like that's because the fish aren't really thinking about spawning hard yet. And they've just come out of Hebgen Lake where they've been feeding all summer long. And they see some sort of natural colored uh, fly going by them and they think, oh yeah, I'm gonna get that. Later in the season, end of September, all through October, then you can fish the brighter colored streamers, brighter soft tackles, And I think at that point, those fish are not only thinking about food, but they're also thinking about just, they're just building up a natural aggression, right? Because they're starting to think about their territory and defending a female and all that. So October, especially, you can pretty much fish anything and it's fair game. Okay. Um, As far as why one fly works better than another, I think it's purely random. I'll definitely go through a run several times, switch flies. You might get a fish on each fly. You might get no fish on any of them. I don't think there's a hard pattern to it at all. Okay. In my experience fishing for these fall run fish, it was not that straightforward, especially in the beginning. I kind of had to work on my technique a lot and figure out how how I was going to meet success. What kind of tips do you have about what people can do when they're swinging? Do you twitch the fly? I guess you can strip it when you're fishing a single hand rod, but would you strip it when you're spay fishing? Yes. So... There's a couple of factors that I think matter when you're swinging a fly. First off, I would tell your listeners, look, if you want to swing flies and you really want to get into them, the deeper your fly is, the better off you're going to be. 
as I mentioned earlier, I'm fishing only the upper six inches of the water. Now there are days when the fish are really active and they're gonna come up all that way and I'm gonna catch a bunch of fish. And there are other days where they're feeling a little more dour and they don't wanna move off the bottom too high. So you, the deeper you get your fly, typically the better you're gonna do. As far as uh, other important factors, I think the swing speed, how fast that fly is moving is very important. And I can't give you like a speed, uh, you know, miles per hour or anything like that, but there is a speed at which you want your fly to swing and that seems to be the most appealing to them. Can't be going too fast and it can't be going too slow. And I think that learning what that speed is comes through experience. Okay. You play around with it. You mend your line to speed it up or slow it down and see what happens, see what reaction you get. Eventually, I think, everyone comes to roughly the same swing speed. And you just know it through feel. You know when your fly is moving at the right pace. Okay. And I think that's a really important factor. I think it's, it's probably more important most of the time than what fly you have on. Okay. Is that swing speed, the depth of it, and the angle the fish is seeing it at. So those are things I would keep in mind. And uh, if you want to get worked up over fly pattern, that's fine too. But look, I've been fishing that thing for almost 40 years. And it seems to me that when the fishing is good, everybody's catching fish. And they're using any number of different flies to do that. And when the fishing isn't any good, well, guess what? No one's catching many fish, regardless of how many different flies they're using. So I think there's some element of it that's simply beyond our control. And we have to accept that. It's kind of like steelhead and salmon fishing. Okay. Um, and you talked about getting your fly down. What's the best way to do that? Just mending or you know fishing streamers with tungsten beads because lead's not allowed in the park yeah you can fish weighted flies of course you can fish uh something that a lot of people are doing these days that we never had back in the day are sinking leaders and those will help especially if you want to use an unweighted fly but you want to get it a little deeper those sinking leaders and they come and they sink in various speeds uh, those are nice you can also use a sinking line though i don't like to do that because it's not as much fun to cast Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so there are different ways to get your fly down. And certainly you can control a little bit through mending, but you know, when you're starting to mend and whatnot, that's affecting your swing a little bit too. So you want to be aware of that. People often talk about how the weather affects them. You'll get some rain uh, and people will say, this is going to bring a lot of fish up or, you know, a sunny day. People will be like, it's not a good day. What, what are you looking for? Well, I think it's very true that the weather affects them. I just don't know how. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's <yeah>. useful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but let me give you a few thoughts. Um, I think if you have to choose a day, overcast, raining, and snowing is the best. And so that's what, what I would lead to. Bad weather, typically, the fishing is better. But what happens is it may not necessarily be better in the morning than a clear, sunny morning but it'll be better through the afternoon and into the evening. So you get a longer time frame okay. at which you can effectively fish. But trust me, I have seen countless untold numbers of crystal clear bluebird days where the fishing was great. And so I think if you do this long enough, the, you realize that, hey, there is no pattern to it. Uh, nothing, nothing definitive. You have to just go and try every day. But if you if you just got a couple days and you you don't have the time to devote to it, you you have to choose one day over another. Choose a cloudy, 
a nasty day over a bright sunny one. What about a day when the the wind is ripping? Is that going to have a influence? I think it depends on whether that wind is storm related or front related. If it's front related, uh, like we have a weather system coming through or have, has just passed, yeah, I think that affects them most of the time negatively. But if you just have a windy day because there's a storm in the area or whatnot, no, then that I wouldn't let that dissuade you at all from going. Okay. Might make the fishing a little harder in terms of the casting and presentation, but I would not, I would not be dissuaded from going on a windy day. Okay, and if somebody does want to get into two-handed rod fishing, what's a good setup for the Madison? Well, I'm going to speak in terms of conventional line weights. And a little bit's going to depend on exactly the flies you want to use. If you want to swing soft tackles and whatnot, anywhere from like a 14 to a 10, uh, a six or seven weight is ideal for that. You want to start throwing big soft tackles, maybe weighted ones or streamers. I think an eight uh, weight is ideal for there. You can obviously do that. Same thing, throw the big heavy flies with lighter lines. It's just not as efficient. Why is that? So, because the line doesn't have enough mass to really deal with those weighted flies or a sinking leader. The, the heavier your line, the more mass there's involved and that will just turn over those flies much better, more efficiently. Okay. So a lot of people are using fairly light lines in there, even trying to throw big stuff, which, yeah, you can do that. It just takes a little bit more work. So if you were just going to say, hey, I just need one rod, one line weight, and I'm going to try and do a lot of different things with it, I'd get a seven weight. How big should the rod be? That varies. And again, I think oh, some of that is going to depend on, is this the only place you're going to use this rod? But I think somewhere in the uh, 13 to 14 foot neighborhood is good all around. Can you find those? Yeah, they're made. I, I know the trend these days is shorter rods and they're fine. It's just that then that rod isn't as versatile if you're going to go steelhead fishing or something else, salmon fishing. Okay. And, you know, one thing that's, that's interesting is Americans on the whole are afraid of longer rods for whatever reason. You know, you go overseas over to Europe, look, they're fishing 16, 18, 20 foot rods. <laughs> now, sometimes they're using much, uh, on much larger rivers, granted. But for, for years, for years and years, I used a 16 foot rod here on the Madison. It was a lot of rod because it was an 11 weight, but it wasn't too long a rod. It's simply that 11 weight over time. I just thought, hey, I don't need to be casting uh, using an 11 weight to cast a size, you know, 10 soft tackle. It was a little overkill from a line weight point of view, but not from a length weight. There's, there's no downside. <laughs> there's just no downside to extra length. And gotcha. there's a lot of upside to it. But, you know, that's uh, it, just, as I said earlier, the trend, of course, is to shorter rods here. You know, 11 foot rods, really popular. But I, I think that if you try the longer ones, and you don't go too heavy with that line weight on the longer rod. They're, they're just more efficient tools. You probably turned a lot of heads with that rod. Oh yeah, yes, <laughs> definitely. I know you've kept close tabs on fly fishing for a long, long time. What other notable runs are there in the U.S.? Well, it's interesting, you know, there's, a, there's a, quite a few rivers 
that have brown trout runs that don't necessarily come out of reservoirs. So I would think of, you know, the Yellowstone over by Livingston gets a nice run of brown trout, but those are all resident fish. They aren't coming up out of a reservoir. Another one where they do come up out of the reservoir would be the Missouri, very popular fall fishery. A couple others in this area south of us, of course, would be the Green River in Wyoming. That's really popular. It has stretches where they are resident fish and then other stretches where they're coming up out of reservoirs. Right closer to home here, rivers like the Big Hole, Jefferson, they have big brown trout populations and those fish are moving around in the fall. In Madison, between Hebgen and Quake Lakes, that gets a nice run of fish out of Quake Lake. And there get some big browns coming up in that little stretch of water. It's not a lot, less than a mile of water. But uh, that run out of Quake Lake, that can be really cool too. But I guess it is the thing that makes the Madison and the park so well known that it's so small and you can really target exactly where they are versus even fishing the Madison just above Quake Lake. It's kind of, it's bigger and it's hard to know exactly where they're going to be. I think that's true. Yeah, while there, there are a lot of fish that come up out of Quake and some really big ones, uh, it's not as easy a water to fish. It's certainly not as suited to swinging flies, though you can certainly do that in some of those areas down below Hebgen. Uh, but the Madison offers just more water and on the whole, more fish. Okay, so let's say you're fishing on a river where they're not, the fish aren't running out of a reservoir and they're just kind of relocating. Are mm -hmm. you just kind of fishing the banks for the streamer and just hoping to luck into one? You're not going to specific holes and knowing that there's gonna be laid up well you you can yes because there are areas on these in fact not that recently there's been a lot of controversy over the green river because there are places known locations where big fish gang up and people that know about that will go in and hammer those fish excessively they'll be fishing to them off reds and they'll be doing anything they can to get those so there are definitely places in all these rivers that are a better spawning habitat than other stretches and so over time if people fish those enough they learn those and, they, and those fish again just like on the madison in the park fish will use those places year after year after year so i don't that's one thing i certainly don't like in this sport is people hammering fish over reds it's, it's totally uncalled for and uh, we're very lucky on the madison in that those fish are mostly spawning in november once the season's closed so we don't really have that issue right around here, but I know elsewhere in the West, it's a big deal. Okay, and those fish in the Madison, they're kind of holed up in those spots. That's not where the reds are anyway, even if you're- Not in the in deepest November. holes. Yeah, not in the deepest holes. They'll move into shallower water to actually spawn. Yeah. So they're just looking for the right combination of size of substrate, current speed, and depth. Okay, I know you've said that fishing for these fall runners is kind of a just different deal than the typical fishing around Yellowstone. What about it is different? How do you have to kind of approach it to be successful compared to just looking for feeding fish? I think you have to accept the fact that there are gonna be long periods where you aren't catching any fish. And then they're gonna be periods when you're catching a bunch of fish. It is very unpredictable in nature. Uh, you want 
reliability, consistency, go down to the Madison below Quake Lake. If you want to catch a, or shot at a big fish, then of course hit the Madison in the park in the fall. But you have to understand that those are long odds and it is just such unpredictable fishing, you have to be prepared to deal with that. You know, everybody hears about that run and they think they're gonna come up here and just clean house day after day. But most of the time it's not like that. There's just so many factors operating on those fish that we don't understand that you have to just be willing to accept, hey, this is like steelhead and salmon fishing. There's gonna be days when I get them and there's gonna be days and periods when I don't get them. So I think most people aren't aware of that. They think it's gonna be super consistent fishing like it is on all the other waters around here. It just isn't that way. So I always try to warn people, hey, you gotta have a reasonable expectation here. And just know that it's gonna take some time. You have to be willing to put in some time and go through some dry spells. But uh, when they are hitting, uh, you can get a bunch of fish and those are days to be treasured for sure. I guess it's that way with all the sweetest things in life. Isn't it's it? It's never going to come yeah. as easily as you want it to. Yep. Yep. But there, look, there's many times when you'll be well rewarded. I'm not here to say, look, you're going to fish seven days uh, and, and go never catch a fish. But there will be days in that seven-day period where, hey, you're going to get a bunch, and there are days when you're not going to get any, maybe. So it's just the ups and downs that you have to be prepared for. Okay. Well, that's super valuable information. I know I wish I had heard some of that before I kind of took on the Madison the first time. Yes, it's a funny fishery and it takes a little bit of experience and time. And uh, you know, what's interesting is now that we've been talking about this for a while, it's October 4th right now. Hey, I'm getting fired up. I got to get in there tomorrow morning and give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was there to go with you. Uh, I wish you were here too. The one thing we forgot to talk about <laughs> is the scene, <laughs> the scenery there fishing the Madison, you know, getting out there before sunrise, it can be incredible. There can be elk bugling, incredible fog and snow. You can see a lot. And uh, I feel like I never pay attention to it because it's all happening before I even catch a fish. And all I'm doing is thinking about the fishing. Yeah, it's so true. You have to take a moment and look around because it is really cool. You get out there early in the morning, there's something about that October or September light. It's low, it's angular, it's beautiful. The grasses have gone gold. There's a lot of mist on the river. We get some great sunrises, colors in the clouds and whatnot. And of course, it's very common to hear and see elk, maybe bison in there. And there is a lot going on around you. So you wanna always take a minute two or two and just look up and, and check out that scenery around you. Yes, well, listeners, wherever you are, I hope you are enjoying the fall. Thanks a ton for coming on, John. Thank you, Peter. I will look forward to next time. Everybody take care. Thanks for listening.